we need to assess functional breathing in an athlete. How well are they breathing? How well is their everyday breathing? Because how you breathe during sports is influenced and determined primarily by how you breathe in your everyday breathing. And a lot of athletes have, have poor breathing patterns. And this holds an athlete back. The Triathlon Show 127. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Patrick McKeown, who is an international best-selling author of the book The Oxygen Advantage, and he's the instructor of the technique or set of techniques that forms The Oxygen Advantage as well. Basically, what it boils down to is uh, breathing through your nose and uh, taking uh, smaller breaths rather than uh, big breaths through your mouth. And this can improve both health and performance in a variety of ways, from delayed lactic acid and uh, fatigue, uh, improved VO2 max, increased lung capacity and respiratory muscle strength, reduction of risk of injury and uh, all sorts of other things that goes into both performance and as i said health like even concentration anxiety stress management so this is a really fascinating topic in the middle of the interview it gets maybe a bit technical but uh, we go into a practical step by step how to apply this towards the end so definitely stick around through that discussion as well to hear all of the interview to learn what to do and how to get started with this i found it a really really fascinating topic before we dive into the interview let's thank our sponsors precision hydration if you are doing any sort of long training and now it's really getting hot here in the northern hemisphere spring almost summer is upon us in some countries so you need to make sure that you not only hydrate properly but you also refuel your electrolyte stores because when you sweat you lose electrolytes and if your electrolyte stores run too low then that will negatively impact performance in training as well as in racing but it's important to remember that this is not a thing that you do just in races you need to train as you race so definitely use precision hydration in your training as well as racing to get your individual electrolyte loss needs met. You can find out more on precisionhydration.com and you can get your first box of precision hydration for free when you use the discount code that triathlon show all one word all caps and again that's precisionhydration.com. All right, let's get into the interview with Patrick McHugh. Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, Patrick McCune from uh, Ireland. How are you this morning, Patrick? Good, Michael. How are you? It's great to talk to you. I'm good as well. And as we just talked about in the pre-interview chat, this is an area that I'm not at all familiar with, just the pre-interview research that I did. So I'm excited to dive into it. You have uh, kind of uh, created or synthesized 
a breathing technique or a technique in general for improved breathing called the oxygen advantage and you've written a book on it so can you give a brief summary about that sure the the oxygen advantage basically it's looking at athletic performance from from two different angles um number one is we need to assess functional breathing in an athlete how well are they breathing how well is their everyday breathing because how you breathe during sports is influenced and determined primarily by how you breathe in your everyday breathing. And a lot of athletes have, have poor breathing patterns and this holds an athlete back. So it's very important for um, stability of the spine, for core strength, um, reducing risk of injury, motor movements, that breathing is functional um, because ultimately it's about getting more oxygen to the cells. So if breathing is off par, the athletes, you know, they can plateau, their fitness can plateau. Um, no matter how hard they train, they, may, they might find that they're just not getting that edge. And also they can be prone to other things, diaphragmatic fatigue, etc. And then the second aspect of it is, is looking at different exercises to lower blood oxygen saturation. So we create a hypoxic effect where there's inadequate oxygen at a tissue level. And we also create a hypercapnic response, which is high CO2. So we use breath holding to almost to challenge the body and that's going to increase resilience and um, it also improves buffering capacity and um, it's possible with some studies there are some non-responders in terms of improving aerobic capacity and with that vo2 max running economy comes up as a result of it so there's two different streams and um, like the exercises i have made some adaptations to exercises and really it was a it's the application of a unique set of exercises that can be used by athletes to target so many different systems. And I think it's got great application for triathletes, for, for running, for cycling, and for swimming. And let's actually cover this first from the start, because this is uh, a podcast presented by my brand called Scientific Triathlon. So what's the scientific evidence behind all of this? When we're looking at functional breathing patterns, there's a lot of research is coming out, say, in the last number of years, looking at breathing pattern disorders and the negative effects that it's having. Um, so, for example, one paper that was published in October of last year in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy, they looked at the correlation between the functional movement screen, the FMS, and poor breathing. And the FMS is traditionally used to assess or to give some feedback on the risk of injury in an athlete. So how, are, how is their movement? How functionally well are they moving? So athletes who scored poorly on the FMS, they also had poor breathing patterns. So there seems to be some relationship between poor breathing and FMS. So those papers are coming out. You know, there's a lot more attention on it. Like ultimately, if you look at the basis of what I'm talking about, 1904, uh, Christian Bohr, he was a physiologist from Denmark, and he talked about the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood being important because in order for oxygen to be released from the red blood cells to the cells, you need carbon dioxide. But for some reason, you know, um, it's endemic throughout the Western world of the importance of taking big breaths. Well, big breathing is just going to get rid of carbon dioxide. And the harder you breathe, the more breathless you are, the more your blood vessels constrict, and the less oxygen that's delivered to the cells. So that physiology is just normal basic physiology. And that ties in then with the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. You know, when oxygen is, is passing from the atmosphere into the lungs and then by diffusion into the blood, um, inside in the blood, 98% of oxygen is carried by hemoglobin. 
and 2% is carried dissolved directly in the blood. So hemoglobin, you know, carbon dioxide and heat and dysphosphoglycerin are the catalysts for the release of oxygen from hemoglobin. So we tap into that recognition. Um, so if an athlete is going around with their mouth open, there's lots of studies showing that mouth breathing is activating the accessory muscles. So the the, the scalenes and the upper chest muscles as opposed to using the diaphragm. And really, we need diaphragmatic movement. And again, there's papers talking about diaphragmatic breathing and the importance of it and the link with the nose. And when you breathe through your nose, you pick up a gas called nitric oxide and you carry that nitric oxide into your lungs. And nitric oxide is a natural bronchodilator, opens up your airways. But nitric oxide also plays a role in what's called ventilation perfusion. So because we're upright, because we're, you know, human beings, we're sitting upright or we're standing upright, we do sports upright, the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower parts of the lungs. But if you're breathing through your mouth, you're taking more air into the upper part. So there's a poor gas exchange taking place. So when you breathe using your nose, you take the air deeper into the lungs. So you use your diaphragm more. You can only use your diaphragm effectively by nose breathing. You can't diaphragmatic breathe effectively. I'm not saying that there's going to be no movement from the diaphragm by mouth breathing, but there's going to be a lot less. So there's quite a few studies on that. So, you know, in terms of that would be addressing breathing pattern disorders. Um, there's ENTs have come out in support. You know, Dr. James Bartley's talked about improving oxygen uptake in the blood from nose breathing, improving entitled CO2, um, even emotional stability. You know, your nose is linked to your diaphragm and your diaphragm is linked to your emotions. And nose breathing is causing resistance to your breathing. Like, you know, it imposes about 50% more resistance than mouth breathing. And in doing that, it slows down the breath. So when you breathe slowly, your mind is quieter. And conversely, when you breathe fast, your mind gets agitated. So just as stress causes us to breathe fast, fast breathing also feeds into stress. So for focus, for concentration... Uh, other research would be looking at sleep. There's a lot of documented evidence going back many, many years of the importance of nose breathing during sleep. Um, on Sunday, I made a brief presentation at International Pediatrics, and that was in Paris, and that was a sleep conf conference, and it was attended by top sleep doctors in the world, including Dr. Christian Guimano. And he's spoken about, and he's written papers about the importance of nose breathing, nasal breathing during sleep. You cannot have a good night's sleep if you're, if you're sleeping with your mouth open. If you're waking up with a dry mouth in the morning, you're not getting good sleep quality. So asthma, we've 19 clinical trials in asthma. I've been involved with four of them indirectly, and I'm a co-author of two of them. And we've seen good results right across the board. And people have said, well, are there negative studies? In terms of buteco method and asthma, there have been no negative studies. Yes, you know, you can always question um, how clinical trials are carried out and they can always be improved. But in general, you know, we have to talk about this. It's logical. It's common sense. The nose is there for a reason on the human being. And despite that, Michael, 50% of studied children persistently breathe through an open mouth. And uh, we don't have a figure for adults because it doesn't get studied. You know, mouth breathing is not the physiological natural way to breathe. It's a, it would be a deficient breathing pattern in compared to nose breathing. So in terms of then simulation of high altitude training, Paris 13 University, there's a, a researcher there called Warrens, and he's produced some but great actually, papers. Let me, let me stop you there to uh, bring yes. us to a summary of what we talked about so far. So 
so what you're saying is that we should be breathing through our noses and that will help us engage our, our di- diaphragm more and yes. we won't actually have to take deep breaths it will be a calm uh not necessarily deep breaths and it will all be through our nose is that how we should be breathing the word deep is very interesting because a deep breath just means that you're using your diaphragm but the way it was interpreted in the western world is that a deep breath is a big breath exactly okay right if you if you breathe harder like if you think of it in, as human beings we survive in food water and air and we can last without food for weeks we can last without water for days and we can last without air for just a few minutes And the importance of a function is determined by how soon the organism perishes when you switch it off. We need a certain amount of food every day, not too much, not too little. We need to drink a certain amount of water, not too much and not too little. But we also need a certain amount of air. But nobody knows how much air should be breathed, at least in the general public. Um, People don't consider it because air is weightless and it's invisible. You know, it's relatively difficult to measure. And it's often accepted that people's breathing is an involuntary activity. And yes, of course, breathing is involuntary, but your breathing is susceptible to change from so many different factors. So we want deep breathing. I want diaphragmatic breathing, but I want light breathing. Think of it this way, Michael. You're in a modern country and you're walking down the street and you see a group of people and all they're doing is walking, but they are breathing hard and they're out of breath. You're going to say at the very least that those people are unfit and they're unhealthy and probably obese. And that's modern life. So heavy breathing is not good. And if you if you went for a run with an elite athlete, you would expect that athlete to have relatively light breathing. Now, by the way, some athletes don't. You know, they have poor breathing patterns. I did a, a podcast with an NFL trainer yesterday and he has a habit of measuring the bolt scores, which we call the body oxygen level test. And basically, it's, it's a measurement that we use to track the breathlessness of the individual. And it's a very simple measurement. You take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, you pinch your nose, you hold your nose with your fingers, and you count how many seconds it takes until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. Then you let go. So it's not a measurement of how long you can hold your breath for. It's only holding the breath until the brain triggers you or the brain sends the messages to breathe. The lower your bolt score the more breathless you are. And many athletes, and I was talking to him yesterday, he says, I'm seeing nine nine seconds, 10 seconds. Now he's working with professional NFL players um, and nobody's looking at their breathing. So well, when you're good, looking at a good reference athlete, value, like if, or a normal, if, if you have okay breathing, not exceptional, but but it's not bad yes. either, what would be a reference okay value? Is the, paper, the paper that I referenced with the functional movement screen they looked at breathing from a biochemical, biomechanical, and also from a psychophysiological aspect. And they said that your breath hold time, if it's less than 25 seconds, it's indicative of dysfunctional breathing. And patterns. is that still, when you say breath hold time, that's still the, the bold score, the exact same? That's the okay. bold, the so, bold so score. So just to, yes. to recap for the listeners, because I think this is an important point, you would uh, take a breath in through your nose, nose and then breathe yes. out and then you pinch your nose and uh, and then yes. you count the, or you, you time yourself until you get yes. the urge to really a strong urge to take a breath was that right well it wouldn't be a strong urge because the strong urge is going to be influenced by willpower and determination but say you can imagine that as you hold your breath at some point your brain is going to say breathe so it's that physiological reaction of the body to resume breathing um to terminate so is it the actually when you, when you then end up 
actually breathing or is it when you first start to want to to breathe it's when you first start wanting to breathe okay okay got it and the breath at the end when you resume breathing your breath should be relatively calm mm. okay perfect so uh Sorry, what were we talking about before? Yeah, it was the NFL player, uh, NFL trainer. Yeah, so we saw many, many of his athletes, and these are elite athletes, and they have a bolt score of 9 and 10 seconds. Um, and since 1975, one researcher, Stanley um, Nishino as well in 2009, they said that breath hold time, as we're measuring it, um, it gives you feedback of the onset of breathlessness. In other words, how soon you get breathless, and also the endurance of breathlessness. How breathless are you over a given level of physical exercise? Because what drives your breathing is not oxygen. Um, when you're when you're doing light physical exercise or even fairly intense physical exercise, your oxygen levels only drive your breathing when your oxygen levels drop by half. And that will tend only to happen if you're doing, say, high altitude training or if you're doing strong breath holds. So the, uh, your everyday breathing is primarily influenced by chemoreceptors in the brain, which are monitoring carbon dioxide. And as you do physical exercise, your metabolism produces more CO2, carbon dioxide. And as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, the chemoreceptors in the brain, they, they fire more to breathe harder to get rid of carbon dioxide. So the body's response to carbon dioxide is very important during physical exercise, because when you do physical exercise, you generate more carbon dioxide. And if you've got a reduced, what's called a reduced ventilatory response to CO2, your breathing is going to be light. But if you've got a strong reaction to carbon dioxide, your breathing is going to be hard. And physical exercise, in order, you could, you know, reduce the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide by doing really intense physical exercise. But it's traumatizing, it's taxing on the individual. And so what we do is we're getting straight into breathing, you know, in terms of changing the chemosensitivity of the brain to carbon dioxide, to reduce the ventilatory response to CO2, because it's the change in the blood gases. We want the body to be able to cope with those changes, both during rest and also, of course, during physical exercise. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and I want to point out at this point as well that uh, I did an interview with with uh, Roger Schmitz, who is the CEO of Moxie Monitor, and they have this uh, oxygen uh, saturation monitor that, uh, and we talked a lot about how in your entire endurance pace range, your your oxygen saturation, blood oxygen saturation stays constant, which is exactly what you're saying here. With it's not oxygen that drives your uh, your breath at all, because you you always have the the uh, the supply of oxygen that your body requires yes. in that basic range. Yes. Let, let's yes. let's talk a bit about now about moving to endurance performance and the benefits for endurance athletes a bit more specifically first are there any and uh, any any evidence any studies that have investigated direct uh, performance benefits of uh, in, or relations between this kind of breathing and endurance performance endurance performance is is going to be you know if, if you're looking at vo2 max can we improve vo2 max can we improve running economy can we improve respiratory muscle strength? Um, endurance athletes are also prone. It's estimated that up to 50% of athletes are prone to diaphragmatic fatigue. And physical exercise doesn't strengthen the diaphragm unless you are doing highly intense physical exercise. And again, you can't, you can't sustain it for a long enough time to get the, the body to make that ad- adaptation. Now, swimming, on the other hand, 
you know, it is breathing against resistance. So it is adding an extra load onto your breathing muscles. So probably the only exception to that is swimming. But just take it logically. You're talking about triathletes. If you're going for a swim, every time that you have to turn your head to breathe, um, it's it's reducing propulsion. Um, it's reducing momentum. So it's called hydrodynamic drag. And if a swimmer has to turn their head quite frequently, the very act of changing the position in the water is going to slow them down. So what we want to do is we want to improve breathing efficiency. How much air do you need for a given level of physical exercise? The more air you need, the slower and the more breathless you're going to be. So we want to fine-tune breathing to make it efficient so that a swimmer can do the same level of physical exercise but lighter breathing, less hydrodynamic drag. Um, so from a number of different, I think it's been well documented by, say, Alison McConnell. She, she's written a book, I think it's called Power Braid. Um, she's got published papers that athletes are prone to diaphragmatic fatigue. And we need to train the diaphragm muscle. Well, we can do that. But in order to train the diaphragm muscle, you need to be nose breathing. Because, again, you know, if you're going around with your mouth open, like I've met Olympic athletes sleeping with their mouth open, walking down the street with their mouth open. Well, that's not good because that's going to negatively affect how you breathe. You you cannot expect your breathing just to improve when you do physical exercise. How you breathe during the day is going to carry through to how you breathe during sports. So, yes, I think there's plenty of evidence in terms of respiratory muscle training. And if you do a stronger breath hold, what happens, there is a change in the blood blood acid base. So your oxygen levels will drop. And we can prove that by pulse oximetry. So as you were talking there, um, Roger Smith's work, if you were going for a, a sprint with your mouth open, your blood oxygen saturation will drop from probably about 97% to about 93%. If you do that same sprint with your mouth closed, it will drop down to about 91%. Um, so you're going into mild hypoxia at that stage. Now, when we're doing breath holding, we completely um, cause severe hypoxia because we're dropping it down to, say, 85% or even down to 80% SpO2. So I just meant to talk about this for just a moment. Now, at the same time, when you're doing a breath holding, um, carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. So we are causing what's called a hypoxic hypercapnic response. So hypoxia is where you're literally exposing the body to inadequate oxygen to cause the body then to make adaptations to improve the buffering capacity. And the buffering capacity, when it improves, um, basically your, your ability then to neutralize acid increases. So you're delaying lactic acid and fatigue. Now, Councilman was a very famous swimming coach in the 1980s. Does that, uh, can, you, can you repeat that? Does it delay the onset of lactic acid, acid or does it yes. improve the, the tolerance of lactic acid it, in the blood both. or both? It's been shown, the papers by Warrens are, are looking at that it's delaying lactic acid and fatigue and it's not shown how it's happening. And um, they, looked, they looked at near-infrared near spectroscopy, so measuring the, the oxygenation of inside in the muscle compartments. And they found that using the breath holding, and by the way, he uses what's called an exhale hold technique. And that's what we've been using since 2002. So I just want to make that difference that if people are doing breath holding, if you breathe in and hold, you're unlikely to get a hypoxic response. Um, you, it can be done, but it takes a lot, lot of training. So if you breathe in and hold, you're more likely to get what's called a hypercapnic response, high CO2. Instead, we do normal breathing, normal breath in through your nose, normal breath out through your nose, and then pinch your nose. And then we'd have the individual say walk, and then as the air hunger gets stronger, we'd have them increase the intensity of it. 
So we are causing a hypoxic, hypercaptic response. Um, so looking at near-infrared spectroscopy, what, as you hold your breath, carbon dioxide is also increasing in the blood, and as you hold your breath, CO2 is also increasing inside in the muscle. And inside in the muscle, you have a dissociation into hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. So there's, you're increasing hydrogen ion inside in the muscle. And it's thought that the buffering capacity is actually increasing inside in the muscle. Um, so there, therefore, that's a good adaptation because in sports, you are delaying then, you know, you're improving the body's ability to buffer acid. So you're delaying lactic acid and fatigue. Now, some of his other papers show that it increased the rate of lactate max and also the rate of lactate accumulation. So the athletes who are, who are performing um, the exhale hole technique that we teach in the oxygen advantage, that it was able to increase the body's tolerance to, towards acidosis. And that's a new finding. I think that paper has only come out in the, in the last few years. You know, so there's many, it's really that we're putting an extra load onto the individual. As I was saying, if you do a sprint, your, your SpO2 is going to drop down to about 91%. Well, we're going to drop your SpO2 down to 85, down to 80%. That's a huge load that we're putting onto the athlete. And that's forcing the athlete then to make adaptations. And many is, adaptations. Is that, the, is that, kind of, that level of SpO2, is that uh, similar to, to altitude training, simulated altitude training? So if you went, say, for instance, into altitude, if you went at, you know, you'd want to be at two and a half thousand meters, um, if you were resting at two and a half thousand meters, your SpO2 will drop down to during rest down to about 93%. And if you do physical exercise, it will, of course, drop. It'll, it will drop more. Um, it's it, it basically what we're doing is we can simulate when I plot the SpO2 off the height, altitude height. Um, as far as I can remember now, it's a, it's a while since I looked at the chart. But you'll find a chart online, and what I can do is I can send you the reference of it so you can include it in your show notes. Um, so with a pulse oximeter, you buy a pulse oximeter on Amazon. You pick them up for about thirty euro, and you—it's a finger probe. It's got a little near It's got a little red light in it, and basically, it's it's measuring how fully loaded is your hemoglobin with oxygen. So with that. As from the top of my head, if your SpO2 drops down to about 85%, you're probably about three to 4,000 meters high. So three to four kilometers high without leaving sea level. Now, the beauty about that, this that, is... That's, that's higher, much, much, much higher than altitude camps usually are. Yes, usually it is, but this is at rest. Camp. So say, for instance, if you're at an altitude camp and you do physical exercise, you would, you would expect a stronger hypoxic response. But the one thing I'd say, Michael, is we're not just looking at the simulation of altitude training in terms of the hypoxic response. We're also increasing the hypercapnic response. And I think that's very important because it's CO2, which is the primary stimulus to breed. So when you do a breath hold, the CO2 in the blood is going to increase from, say, if it's normal at 40 millimeter of mercury pressure, it will increase to 50, even plus 50. And that's a huge change in terms of, you know, the, the, the increased stimulus as a result of that increased CO2. And what's happening then is that if you're looking at papers, looking even at the training mask, and the training mask has become popular for many, many sports. Now, originally it was claimed that it was a hypoxic training device, but that's not true. Um, you can prove it to yourself. You wear a training mask, use pulse oximetry, and you'll see that your oxygen saturations will tend to stay within normal levels. So it's very easy to prove if something is causing a hypoxic effect or not. But what the training mask was doing was pooling carbon dioxide. So when they looked at studies then, 
it's the it's improving anaerobic threshold the point at which you're going from aerobic into anaerobic so you're able to delay that and i think that's going to have good applications um across a number of sports you know you're improving at now the researchers they weren't sure about how it's happening but they thought it was because of the increased tolerance towards carbon dioxide but that's exactly what we're looking at in actual fact if you breathe through your nose your nose is going to, to impose quite a, a resistance to your breathing that you're going to increase end-tidal CO2 as well. Now, I'm not saying do all of your sports with your mouth closed because when it gets very, very tough, you know, there are times that you're going to have to open your mouth. But I would say is any athlete, you want to get a bolt score of at least above 25 seconds. And the goal, William McCarter wrote a book, Nutrition and Physical Performance. And he's saying that if an athlete exhales, they should be able to hold their breath for 40 seconds before the urge to initiate breathing is resumed. So an athlete is able to hold their breath for 40 seconds. That would be the goal. Brilliant. A, a couple more uh, similar questions on the, sure. the performance benefits before going into some wrapping it up with uh, a practical step-by-step guide. You mentioned there briefly aerobic capacity, VO2 max. Can you yes. repeat that again? What's the link between between this and VO2 max? Yes, so just two aspects looking at VO2 max. If you can increase oxygen car- carrying capacity in the blood, um, you will tend to increase VO2 max. So there's a direct relationship um, between increasing you know, your, your body's ability to carry oxygen and the amount of oxygen that you can deliver to a working muscle. So when we're do doing we strong, any, do we have any idea or any indications of how big in magnitude this change can be for yes. a normal, regular breather? Yeah, well, one one paper that's now I'm not sure what what level they were, you know. But again, I can send you on the paper, um, and basically it was using the exhale hold technique, the same as we did. That hemoglobin increased, I think, by about five percent, but VO two max increased by ten point seven nine percent. Wow. So that's one paper. Um, other papers then show a relationship between the ventilatory response to CO2 and VO2 max. So, for instance, there's quite a few papers, even going back, you know, the last 20, 30 years, showing that if you've got a strong ventilatory response to carbon dioxide, you'll tend to have a lower VO2 max. If you've got a reduced ventilatory response to CO2, you'll tend to have a higher VO2 max. Now, could it be on the basis that if you can tolerate a higher level of CO2 in the blood, carbon dioxide is the stimulus or is the catalyst for the release of oxygen from the red blood cells, that you're getting more oxygen delivery to the cells. So having end titles, having you know, normal levels of arterial CO2, being able to cope with carbon dioxide is important because ultimately it's not just good enough to have oxygen in the blood. And as you pointed out, you've got such a, a large reserve of oxygen in the human body. It's when your oxygen levels drop to 50% that breathing is stimulated. So we need to get the oxygen out of the blood and into the cells. And it's carbon dioxide that's the catalyst for that. The other thing about carbon dioxide is it's a vasodilator. It opens up your blood vessels. And these are just normal physiological responses. You know, if you look at any medical textbook, you look at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, you look at the functions of carbon dioxide, you know, they're normal, just physiological responses. So can you imagine this? Imagine an athlete with a low bolt score and they're going for a run and they are breathing hard all the way through that run. Well, not only is it more taxing on the respiratory system because there's an energy cost associated with breathing. If you're sitting down, 
two to three percent of your oxygen consumption is going to support your breathing muscles. And if you do fairly high intensity exercise, it can increase to as high as 10%. And if you do really maximum intensity exercise, it will increase to 15%. So 15% of your oxygen consumption is going to support your breathing muscles. That, that, actually, that, yeah. that actually answers my next question, because I, I was going to then ask about economy, because I saw on your website that uh, this can potentially improve economy. And that sounds yes. like the territory that we're getting into here. Yes, and with that then, with running economy, that, that was used with swimmers. Um, and again, I can, you know, you've got the references there and you can check the papers. Now, as far as I can remember, that running economy increased by 6%. So, Which is huge. So, you know, and a lot of these papers, like if you were to ask me, were they elite athletes? I can't remember, to be honest with you. But I was looking at one paper this morning, looking at working with rugby players. And again, it's Warren's work. And they're looking, their repeated sprintability increased dramatically. And these were elite rugby players. Like, and usually at this level, if you're talking about elite athletes, the margin of performance difference is only about a half a percent. If we can get a fraction of a percent to improve performance, it makes a huge difference. And we're not just targeting one system. That's the beauty about this. I think people don't realize what you can do when you tap into Number one, athletes aren't tapping into breathing and the potential from it. And it's got a huge potential. Like this is not just about high altitude training. This is about so many different applications from improving your everyday breathing, you know, reducing the risk of injury, better spinal stability, um, improving core strength, um, reducing lactic acid and fatigue, improving aerobic capacity, improving VO2 max, improving running economy. And that's what I spent the four or five years doing. It's just joining the dots together. And, you know, okay, I think it's it's a relatively new field as well. But we've seen tremendous feedback and there's no side effects. And once you once you master the technique, there's no cost. So that's uh, this is all awesome. And what I want to do now is to kind of have a segment where we get into the really practical advice, the thing that people can, uh, a part of the, of the interview that people can really listen to and they will hear uh, short and sweet what to do, how to do it, and sure. uh, simple as that. So, so if we start, it's the baseline. What, what, do you start with the bolt test or where do you start if you want to start to benefit test from this? Bolt test will be a very good place to start. Um, you can access, I have short videos up on YouTube as well. We have an Oxygen Advantage channel and... You'll see a kind of a video there and working with athletes. So, but the bowl test is you take a normal breath into your, you're sitting down. You have to sit down for about, say, five to 10 minutes to rest first. And you take a normal breath into your nose, a normal breath out to your nose, pinch your nose with your fingers and time how long it takes before you feel the first definite desire to breathe. Now, coinciding with that, you may feel the first involuntary movement of the breathing muscles. Let go of your nose, resume breathing and your breathing should be calm. The optimum bolt score is 40 seconds, but you're doing pretty good if you're 25 seconds plus. So that would be a good place to start. I think it would be good for athletes to, to, can we influence your blood circulation by changing your breathing? And a very simple test here is, and all I want to do is I want to show that light breathing is good because it keeps the blood vessels open and it allows more oxygen to be released to the cells. All an athlete would have to do is put one hand on their chest, one hand on their tummy as they're sitting down, pay attention to the airflow as it comes in and out of the nose and start gently slowing down their breathing. Not to hold the breath, not to freeze the breath, not to tense the breathing muscles, but just to gently soften the breath. 
and to soften the breath to the point that they feel air hunger. So air hunger is signifying that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And to do that for about three minutes and to check a number of things. Do they have a change in body temperature? Do they have increased watery saliva in the mouth? So you, we have our blood circulation is entirely influenced by how hard we breathe. And what I want to do is I want athletes to practice changing their breathing during the day by improving, and that increases their both score, and then that translates into better breathing efficiency during their sports performance. So, Don't so let that, your so breathing that, hold you back. That's something that you should do daily, for example, doing that uh, three minutes of, of lighter yes. breathing. And you can do it a few times. It's tremendous to do before sleep. Um, and, it, you know, if at first, like it, it shouldn't be feeling uncomfortable, but you should be doing it, softening the breath sufficiently. But I would say do it as an experiment first, because the reason that I say that is how many times have we heard the instruction, take a big breath and take a deep breath? Well, a deep breath just means using your diaphragm. A deep breath doesn't have to be big. And just as I use the analogy, well, if you're eating a lot of food every day, it's not going to do you much good. If you breathe a lot of air, you don't increase the amount of oxygen delivered to the cells. The harder you breathe, the more air you breathe, the less oxygen that's getting delivered to the cells. So people who are breathing hard are depriving their muscles of oxygen. And uh, for to keep this uh, discussion on the practical advice, what about in sport training of uh, your breathing technique, in running, in cycling, and in swimming? Uh, how is that something that we should implement? And if so, how? Yes, so I would start from the night before. We actually use paper tape in the lips, which might kind of sound a bit bizarre. Um, any athletes who are waking up at a dry mouth in the morning, that's negatively impacting their sleep. They're not going to have the focus. They're not going to have the concentration. And it just mightn't be in form. So we want to improve sleep. And we use, we use a paper tape. So one tape is called lipsealtape.com. And it's paper tape specifically for placing across the lips. Now, if somebody has very poor nostrils, you know, because maybe they have been mouth breathing as a child or maybe they have asthma, and if they have asthma, their nose tends to be stuffy. And if their nose is stuffy, they tend to breathe through the mouth. And that can, you know, it can cause consequences in the shape of the airway. So if the nostrils are very small, it can be difficult to maintain nasal breathing during light exercise. So you might have to get a nasal dilator just to help open up the nose. And one product would be called a turbine. Um, I would say, you know, we have a match pre-match preparation in terms of if it was a really important con competition. We do relaxation first with reduced breathing, but that makes the athlete too kind of drowsy because it's activating the parasympathetic response. But then I have them do six to, to 10 strong breath holds and that activates the sympathetic response, but it also focuses the mind because when you do a strong breath hold, even though your SpO2, your blood oxygen saturation is dropping, it doesn't mean that the brain is getting less oxygen because the human body is so intelligent. If you do a strong breath hold, what happens is that the blood vessels, the carotid arteries feeding the brain with oxygen, they dilate. So it makes you alert. It makes you focused. Now, the strong breath hold also will cause what's called a splenic contraction. So your spleen is um, an organ that's just located under your diaphragm, and it contains about 8% of your red blood cell. But it's a very richly, densely packed red blood cells. The hematocrit um, is 80%. Now, that's really, really high, given that a normal male will have hematocrit probably from about, say, 40 to an upper range of 50%. So if you do five breath holds on the exhale, 
you'll cause the spleen to contract by about 20% and that's increasing your oxygen carrying capacity. So that can be a good effect. You also generate erythropoietin by doing strong breath tolling. So e we have an app to do for, for EPO. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so we, you know, pre-competition, we would do relaxation and that's to focus the mind. And then we do strong breath tolls. And again, that's to focus the mind, but that's to prepare the body physiologically. But now the body is a little bit too acid. So now I do 30 seconds of hyperventilation to get rid of the acid. Now the athlete is ready to, to perform. During the competition itself, say for instance, if you're doing fairly light physical exercise, maintain nose breathing. If you have to open the mouth at points, open the mouth at points. Um, but ultimately, when you breathe through your nose, the size of each breath is going to be larger. It's deeper, but the respiratory rate is going to be lighter. Your oxygen uptake is going to be better and the oxygen delivery is going to be better. But I would say is, you know, practice a lot of your practice sessions with nose breathing. Now, initially, your nose will tend to run um, and it can take a few weeks, you know, before the nose dries up. So just bear that in mind. And even on a cold day, the nose can run. And that's kind of normal. But I'm not saying to have nose breathing 100% of the time. If you're a recreational athlete, yes, of course. But if you're a competitive athlete, if I'm working with elite athletes, I don't want nose breathing all the time because the nose imposes quite a resistance to your breathing. So I don't want the nose, as a result of breathing through it, causing any muscle deconditioning. So we'll do about 70% nose breathing, maybe 30% mouth breathing. Mouth breathing, and it's kind of like the live high, train low model um, that's, you know, for high altitude training. Don't exercise at high altitude because there is, because the resistance to your breathing is going to hold you back. And even though you get improvements to your red blood cells, you might actually have muscle decondition. So you might have a drop to overall performance. So, so yeah, so that, have, that's exactly that, that's exactly what I was thinking. That maybe you do your quality workouts where you have intensity. Yes, you do them normally with all the oxygen that you can possibly get in using your mouth and your nose. Nose. And then, but when you do the majority of your workouts at, at an easier intensity, that's a good place to try to, as much as possible, use nose breathing. Yes, yes, it is. And even, you know, if you can do some high intensity training as well, like if you look at what's happening in high intensity training in terms of causing blood acidosis, well, breath holding at a moderate pace, you know, athletes want to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis. I know it's not necessarily for, for triathletes, but say an athlete who is going out at all intensity to stimulate anaerobic glycolysis. It's traumatic. It increases the risk of injury. Whereas we, we can do a breath tolling at a moderate pace or a breath tolling at a light jog. And, you know, we, of course, weren't the first to do it. Emil Zatopek was probably, he's regarded as one of the best athletes probably of all time, best runners. So he was a Czech back in the 1950s. And in 1952, um, he participated in the, the Helsinki Olympics. And I think he, wrote, he won the 5,000 meters. And I think then he, he decided to do the 10,000 meters and he won that. And then he decided to run the marathon. He'd never ran a marathon in his life and he won it. Now, he discovered two things as part of his training that he regularly put into his training. One was high intensity interval training. And the second one was breath holding. So there's talks and videos of him. Um, and this is the world's, you know, probably regarded by many people as one of the best runners in the world that he was breathing in because he was that mindset to push the body to make the body have adaptations. And he's not alone. If you look at Dr. Timothy Noakes and um, the lore of running, and he'll talk about the central governor in the brain that you want to train harder 
to train the brain that the body can can do it you know can run harder and faster well when we're doing breath holding we may be causing those adaptations and you know it's almost that there's a conditioning element to it and by the way it's very normal to do breath holding our ancestors did it some of the longest living people on on earth ama people off the coast of japan do it if you go to a local swimming pool you'll see kids going down into water picking up a penny off the bottom of the of the pool and they'll come up and they're gasping for breath but that's what we do as well but we do it under controlled circumstances we generally use pulse oximetry and the exercises are specifically designed to get the maximum um you know effect well we could talk for hours and hours about this there's just so much to to talk <laughs> about a lot. but uh for people that want to learn more, you already mentioned the YouTube channel that you have at the Oxygen Advantage. If you type that into YouTube, you can obviously find it. And your website yes. is oxygenadvantage.com. And you can get uh, there you can get the book and everything. As I mentioned before the show, I'm an Audible member. So I get one audio book every month as that membership. And the next next month, I'm probably getting this one <laughs> too, to listen to. So yeah, looking forward to that. And if you... If you don't mind, if I can just mention, because we do two-hour trainings for athletes by webinar, and I work with athletes, so they, they just sign in on webinar. It's two hours, and I'll go through them. It's $95. They get all the videos, um, and I go through all of the exercises with them live, and after that, then they get access to the recording. So it might be because I'm conscious that some people don't necessarily like to read books, and sometimes it, it can be difficult. How do you follow instruction from a book? Whereas if you're watching me in a video and I'm explaining the, the exercises to you, um, it could be a very good way to go. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, great, great that you mentioned that as well. Uh, but uh, let's uh, start to wrap up. Yeah, one thing that I wanted to mention, by the way, I recently interviewed uh, a researcher called Jordan Santos, and he has done a project in uh, Kenyan runners. Yes. And he mentioned that one one thing that seems to set them apart from all the rest of uh, the run, endurance runners in the world is that they it's, th- their bl- brain oxygenation doesn't drop as easily as other runners for whatever reason. He didn't mention, they didn't know any reasons, I think, but that goes along with what you were saying, that that's one of the things that you can improve using these techniques that we've been talking about today. Yes. So, uh, so there's some uh, anecdotal evidence that at least be that the not necessarily breathing. We don't know what they do, but but actually being able to to have a keep a higher oxygenation, whatever with whatever means possible that you do. Well, it, well you can good. you can influence it, Michael. You know, if you're thinking of any of your athletes with anxiety or panic attacks, because ten years ago, well, it wasn't. It was in 2010, eight years ago. I wrote a book um, looking at the effect of breathing on, on anxiety and panic attacks. It, traditionally, when somebody had a panic attack, they were hand, handed a brown paper bag. And the whole purpose of the brown paper bag was to rebreed carbon dioxide into, into the lungs to increase CO2 in the blood because it's CO2 which is opening up the blood vessels supplying the brain with oxygen. You can influence um, blood flow to the brain through your breathing. And we, you know, we really have to bear that in mind. We've maybe 70,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. Your entire blood circulation is influenced by how you breathe, and it's not by taking that big breath. Yeah, exactly. No, that that was what I was saying. That we can potentially tap into the benefits that have been shown to exist from increased uh, brain oxygenation by using yes. these techniques. Yeah, that's a good yes. good point. And uh, well, one other thing is that with the nose breathing, that's anybody who's done any meditation 
knows that that's the basic instruction to breathe in through your nose, yes. nose and not, not your mouth. So yes. it uh, is connected to that as well and staying calm, as you mentioned, and and focused. So let's yes. go into some quick rapid fire questions. And mm-hmm. I'm challenging you now to answer these in no more than one sentence. So All right. let's start with what's your favorite book, blog or resource other than your own? Favorite book of all time, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. What's the personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, I was 20 years as a mouth breeder. Switching to nose breeder literally changed my life. And what do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your journey? And again, I wish that I wasn't 20 years of having my mouth open. That's despite going to doctors, um, to healthcare professionals. And unfortunately, the instruction isn't put out there. Yeah, we, we haven't even touched upon a lot of the things that you have on your website, like how the tooth health or straight teeth are related to breathing and yes. all sorts of things yes. that were completely unknown to me. So there's just yes. a ton of things that listeners can get, get from watching the videos on your website, on YouTube and, and getting the book, which uh, I'm sure will go into all of these things in even more detail. So uh, I want to thank you so much, Patrick, for taking the time to join us today. It was really fascinating. And uh, I look forward to hear how the listeners go and what they think about this. And they can comment in the show notes uh, on the show notes page as usual to to let us know how they get along with trying the bolt test, for example, as the first step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. So there you have it. I really meant it when I said that we could talk for hours about this topic. This is so fascinating and so new to me. I didn't know any of this before I started researching this episode, really. So I'm super pumped up to have talked with Patrick about it. And I hope that you enjoyed it and found it valuable. I'm definitely going to do things like take the Bolt test and see where my breathlessness level is at at the moment and I suspect it won't be too good (laughs) because when we do hypoxic training in the pool at least that's definitely one of my weaknesses when it comes to the swim sessions that we do. But that's a good thing because that means that there's room for significant improvement and hopefully performance improvement specifically. So my key takeaways from this episode really were that first there are a lot of different mechanisms through which these breathing techniques and different ways to breathe, like nose breathing and not big breaths, can improve performance. Like we talked about VO2 max, improved vasodilation, so an improved blood flow, improved uh, oxygenation, but also improved tolerance to carbon dioxide. So and these are just a couple of things that now immediately spring to mind. So there are a lot of mechanisms. So chances are that if you start doing this and even just doing the basic three minute exercise that we described every day, a couple of times per day, maybe, then that will already give you quite a bit of benefit. But if you want to combine it with uh, with exercise, then that will bring you even more. And what I would suggest, again, this is just my intuition, as I'm definitely not an expert. But what I would do is to, and what I will experiment with, is to do my easy uh, sessions, my normal endurance runs and recovery rides. Hey, actually, did I mention that I'm running again? That's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, I would do my normal easy training 
with experimenting with this breath hold and or not breath hold sorry nasal nasal breathing and see how that goes so i'm excited to give that a go and that's what i would recommend i would not recommend trying to do this immediately in your hard workouts but as patrick said that's something that you can maybe work towards in some of your sessions but he also said that you you should not necessarily do that in all of your sessions because the the reason is that it's as if you're working at altitude you can't generate quite as high an out- output which may result in actually that muscular muscularly you kind of has suffered from decreased performance because you're you're not able to go at the output required to to maintain your level of muscular fitness because remember it's not just about aerobic fitness and uh, and having the capacity to take up a lot of oxygen and use a lot of oxygen you need to have uh, the muscles work just as well aerobic endurance and muscular endurance go hand in hand even though they are very different but both are needed and you can't let one side get uh, too strong and overpower the other because then you will still be limited by the weakest of the two so those are my key takeaways definitely go and check out oxygenadvantage.com patrick's website and also check them out on twitter youtube facebook it's uh, oxygen advantage on all of those place places so check that out And I also think that you should check out the webinar that Patrick has. He is one of the greatest experts in the world on this topic. And uh, learning for 95 euros, being able to learn from him is a very small fee. And it's an investment in yourself and your ability to improve as an athlete. So it's uh, those kinds of investments, as you know, are the best ones. It's uh, by far superior to any gear that you can buy which if you listen to this podcast regularly you know that uh, that's not only my opinion but the opinions of most of my guests as well whether it's uh, learning a new breathing technique going to a physio getting a coach etc finally some uh, house cleaning items for a little while here i will go back to doing two episodes per week on that triathlon show I want to spend a bit more time uh, coaching and a bit less time podcasting uh, at the moment. So so I'll see how that goes. And if I can figure out some sweet process and operating procedure to speed up making these podcasts, then I may go back to three episodes per week again. I would like to do that, but uh, with the quality of uh, the content that I try to produce, it's not easy. I can't short change the research that I need to do before interviews and uh, actually doing the interviews as well doing solo episodes if I do deep dives into some specific topic that takes a lot of time so I would rather give you one really good episode per week rather than two plus a beginner tip as you've become used to now I will keep doing those those are a bit uh, quicker to get out so so that's something that i'll keep doing uh, the beginner tips will have uh, sponsors from now on because uh, i have the commitment to my sponsors to give them two episodes per week but as you know i only allow sponsors that i really really admire and can endorse so so i hope that you will appreciate that for what it is and actually being part of good content in the beginner tips as well to give you some ideas of what companies i think are doing great things on the triathlon market and 
I definitely welcome feedback on this change, even if uh, I don't lo lo know how long this change will go on for, if I will go back at some point to three episodes per week. But definitely send me your feedback to michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's Michael with a K. And uh, tell me if you would like me to do uh, three episodes per week, as I have been doing, or maybe you haven't been able to keep up. I know I've seen some people say that, uh, that there's too much, too many episodes, they don't have time to listen to all of them. So maybe it's just a good thing, and uh, I do want to to know where, what, whether it's good or bad, do send me the feedback, I appreciate it all. So again, that's Michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and Michael is spelled with a K. The next episode will be out, well, it will be on uh, Friday or maybe Thursday. I might switch the beginner tips to Thursdays, actually. Uh, I'll probably will. Let's uh, make a decision here and now that I will. But the next interview will be next Monday, and that one will be a doozy. It's with Paul Larson about interval training, and we will get into real specifics, interval training mastery, what's the right recovery time, what's the right intensity of intervals for which specific purposes, what do you want to optimize your intervals for, etc. It will be a real masterclass and Paul Larson is uh, the top of the field in that topic. So I'm super pumped for that as well. I will do that interview tomorrow. I haven't done it yet, but that one will be cool. So definitely listen to that interview next Monday. Thank you to Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode. Check them out on precisionhydration.com and remember that you need to work your electrolyte plan out for your summer races and that starts with actually practicing it in training. So go and get those electrolyte boxes and tubes from Precision Hydration that match your individual needs and you can take their free online sweat test to find out your number. How much electrolytes do you need? It's probably not the same amount that you would get in a regular sports drink because the individual variance is just so big. You can get your first box for free when you use the discount code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps, on precisionhydration.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.